All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter one. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter one with me. And I entitled this engraved stones, plastered stones. Deuteronomy chapter one, verse thirty four. And it's, the Bible says this, and the Lord heard the voice of your words and he and was wroth and swear, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation. Now, take note of that of this evil generation. See the good land, which I swear to give unto your fathers. Note that one. Fathers save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon and to his children. Take a note of that one, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Also, the Lord was angry with me for your sake, saying, Thou also shalt not go in thither, but Joshua, the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, take note of that one, which ye said should be a prey, and your children, note that, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither. And unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Now go over to chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 8, 1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do. That ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. World War Two was uh, probably the most titanic conflict in history. Eighty one years ago, this coming September 1st, that would be 1939. Germany invaded Poland without warning, sparking the start of World War II. It involved every major world power as they fought for global domination. More than 60 million people lost their lives. Most of Europe and large parts of Asia lay in ruins. Our soldier boys came home. At least some of them came home. And some did not. My grandparents had four boys in that conflict. And when they came home, all the family got together, and this was uh, 15 siblings, they all got together and their wives and their children to see the boys that came home from the war. And that started the Elstock reunion, and it's continued until this day, although the, the four veterans, they're, they're gone. <clears throat> the Elstock reunion included four generations, maybe more, but four that I could easily count. My mom, her family reunion right now includes four generations. You got my mom and then you got her children. That's me and my brothers and my sister. 
which would be generation two. And then our children would be generation three. And now they have children, generation four. And the oldest of their grandchildren is Kayla. Would she be the oldest, 16 years old? And so it's possible my mom will see her great, great grandchildren during her sojourn on this earth. Now, there's a multi-generational family recognition in Scripture that's both positive and unfortunately negative. And as I was studying through the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy in my devotions, I took note of how God deals with families multi-generationally and how one generation impacts another. It's found in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Elsewhere in the Bible. Book of Numbers gets its name from what? The numbering of the tribes of the family of, of Israel. The passages that we just read struck me with the thought that there is a multi-generational responsibility they have toward one another. I'll call them generation one, two, and three. Look at the end of verse one, Deuteronomy eight one. For the last phrase, they go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. All right, we're going to call that generation number one. And thou, generation number two, shall remember all the way that the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to, to humble thee. And then generation number one was concerned about their children. They didn't want their children to be slain by the inhabitants of the Canaanites. And, and so they, they wouldn't go in. Uh, but they, children, generation number two did go in along with their kids, which we'll call generation three. It's generation number one. They saw the miracles of Egypt. They knew the hard bondage in Egypt. They begged God for deliverance from Egypt and God delivered them. They saw the plagues. They were delivered from the plagues. They saw the crossing of the, the Red Sea. They, they went to Mount Sinai. These people knew the, the mud pits and they knew the deliverance. And they had children. The passage that we, are, we, we read was written primarily to their children, generation number two. The book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers was primarily written to generation number one. Deuteronomy, generation number two. And God tells generation number two to remember. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. And by the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, it's Moses' final instructions. He's not going in. He's not going into the promised land. But he gives his final instructions to his audience, this generation number two. And he rehearses the things that God did for them. 40 years in the wilderness. Why did the children of Israel spend 40 years in the wilderness? Well, it's really dependent. There's multiple reasons, and it's dependent upon the generation. Generation number one, the purpose they spent 40 years in the wilderness, it was punitive. God was punishing them because over and over again, they would not obey God. And he finally, you know, at the at Kadesh Barnea, when they were supposed to go in and occupy the land and they wouldn't go. And that, and that was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And God said, that's it. None of you are going in. You're going to wander in the wilderness until you die in the wilderness. 
So the wilderness wanderings for generation number one was to give them the chance to die there because God was not going to let them go into the, into the promised land. But for generation number two, the wilderness wanderings was to test them. And that's what it tells us in verse two that we read. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in thine heart. God knew what was in the heart of generation number one. They weren't going to trust him. But he's going to test generation number two to see what they're going to do. So he to test them, to know what was in their heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and he suffered thee the hunger and fed thee with manna. Which thou knewest not, neither did the fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God doth man live. So God is going to use the wilderness wanderings to test generation number two, to humble them. And you know what? They passed the test. They did. And at the end of 40 years, God says, you're going in. Now, Moses, you're not going. Uh, Joshua, you can go. Caleb, you can go. You passed the test. All the other of generation number one dies. Generation number two, you pass the test. You're going in. Generation number one came from this bondage in Egypt. And they just refused. That's sad. Generation number two, they had to grow up and they had to be tested with cold and hunger and constant wandering and they had their character and commitment tested. It was a 40 year long test. Now, catch this generation. And this is really important. Generation number two did not grow up in the promised land. Because of generation number one. Now, let that sink in. Generation number two did not grow up in the promised land because of generation number one. Had generation number one followed God, generation number two would have grown up in the land of blessing. But they grew up in the wilderness, hot and cold and hungry and constant, packing up camp and wandering and setting up camp and packing up camp and wandering and setting up camp. And that was their life because mom and dad didn't trust God. And then there's generation number three. They go into the promised land with generation number two. And generation number two fights the battles, defeats the Canaanites, and they hand generation number three this marvelous land that they can live in. They didn't have to fight for it. Mom and dad handed it to them. Some lessons in here for us. Lesson number one. A person's Quality of life is not solely dependent upon their obedience. It is partly dependent upon their parents' obedience. Now, parents, that ought to make us stop and think. Our children's quality of life, in some degree, is dependent upon our obedience to God. Teens, kids that are here. Your parents' commitment to God is a blessing to you. Now, you don't think about it like that. Uh, yet, because of your age and, and your life experience is still small, but it's going to get large in time. 
But really, the quality of your life is dependent upon your parents and God blessing your parents. So if if you haven't done it recently, it would be a real good thing for you to get on your knees, maybe even tonight before you go to bed, and thank God for your parents. And thank God that your parents want to walk with the Lord because that makes your life easier. And if they didn't walk with the Lord, your life would really get hard and it would get hard quick. Now, God will not punish you, kids. God will not, teens. God won't punish you for your parents' sin. But when your parents get chastised by God, you'll suffer too. Now, he's not punishing you, but you're going to experience some of the effect of that as he punishes them. So if you if you haven't thanked God for your parents or prayed for them, do that. Pray for them. And if you know when mom and dad are doing wrong, then you pray and ask God to convict them so that they would listen to God. Your life will be easier that way. I want to read Deuteronomy 12. Don't turn there, but here's what it says. Observe and hear all the words which I command thee, that it may be well with thee and with thy children after thee forever. Wow. So it may be well with thee and with thy children. And if it's well with you, it can be well with your children. Parents, your obedience benefits your kids. That is a good motivation to live for God. Generation number two obeyed God in the wilderness. They buried their parents in the wilderness and then they come out of the wilderness wanderings up through the Transjordan. They fight the Moabites. They fight the Ammonites. They fight the Amorites. They then come across the Jordan River where they fight the Canaanites in the promised land. Now, do we have the map up on this on this screen here? Will I see the map up here on the back? I do see it now. I can almost see it now. <laughs> I need stronger glasses. I said, but I got to turn around here and point. All right. All right. Okay. They come up. Children of Israel come up through Moab and Ammon. They come all the way up here, and the Amorites all the way up to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. They come back down and they cross the Jordan River. And they fight the battle of Jericho. They defeat Jericho. By the way, Gilgal is their camp. But they come down and they fight Jericho and defeat it. And then they come and they fight Ai and lose. Because Achan sinned. And that guy's sin cost his kids their life. Generation number two caused generation number three great heartache. And they then... But fight them a second time and win, and then they come up. And here's what we're going to focus on right here. Shechem, Mount Gerizim is right here, and Mount Ebal is right here. Two mountains where a special event is going to take place. Now, Gilgal, it's 800 feet below sea level, and Mount Gerizim, where they're going to end up, is 2,800 feet above sea level. So this is a, a huge trek uphill from Gilgal up to Mount Gerizim and to move men and women and children and livestock. This is a this is a difficult task. 
in a climate that is desert. I want you to see what they're supposed to do when they get up there. So go to Deuteronomy chapter 27. These are Moses' instructions. The instructions were given before they even entered the promised land. Moses is over there on the, in the Transjordan, east side of the Jordan River, and he gives these instructions. In chapter 27, verse 13. And Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set up the great stones and plaster them with plaster. And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou, shalt, when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Therefore, it shall be when ye be gone over Jordan that ye shall set up these stones, which I command you this day in Mount Ebel, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. And there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build an altar of the Lord of the Lord thy God with whole stones, and thou shalt Offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God, and thou shalt offer peace offerings, and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebel to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So here, the 12 tribes of Israel, half of them, half of them get up here on Mount Ebal where they erect a stone pillar and plaster it. And then half of them over here, Mount Gerizim. And if you, if you ever visit this area, this is a natural amphitheater. You can stand below and you can, and you can just, it's like a stadium that wraps around and Mount Gerizim up here and Mount Ebal up here. And half of the Jews got here and half of the Jews got there. And some were going to read the blessings and some were going to read the curses. This is what's going to happen. And now I need the help of the teenagers. And let's just bring the teens up. So Nick, Brother Nick and the teens, come on up here. Bring your Bibles with you, by the way. You're going to lead the adults tonight. So I want you to go to. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Get that passage. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what the Jews did. They, they got up on these mountains and they read antiphonally. They read, then they read, then they read, then they read, and they're reading to each other the law of God. And he wants the whole nation to hear the law of God. So I'm going to make it a little easier. They're going to, I'm going to read a portion of the scripture and I'm going to let them finish with I want you to say it as they say it. So we're all participating. They're just going to be your leaders and Nick's going to lead them. 
Is that dangerous? So we're going to read Deuteronomy 27, and I'm going to start in verse 14, and we're going to read down through verse 26. And I, I will read, and when I stop, all of you read the next phrase. I'm going to start in verse 14, Deuteronomy 27:14, And the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image. An abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, fatherless and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, because he uncovereth his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with any manner of beast. Cursed be he that lieth with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that smiteth his neighbor secretly. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Thank you. You did a good job. The Jews got on the mountaintops and they sang, they read the curses and the blessings. Now go to chapter 28, verse 1. We just saw the curses. Here's the blessings. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God, which set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and shall flee before these seven ways, the Lord shall command the blessing upon thee and thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Blessing for obedience. Cursing for disobedience. Now, that was the instruction that Moses gave the children of Israel when they were over on the east side of the Jordan River. And then Moses goes up on Mount Nebo and God 
takes them on to heaven from there. And Joshua leads the children of Israel across the Jordan River and they start conquering and they go all the way up to Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim. Did they do what they were supposed to do? Go to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua 8. This is the record of them doing what they were instructed by Moses to do. Joshua 8, look in verse 30. And Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebel. Okay, now he's going to do what Moses told him to do. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up any iron. And they offered there on burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And all Israel and their elders and officers and judges stood on this side, the ark, and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well as the stranger, as he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Ebel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, and they that they and they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. So he did. He did what Moses instructed him to do, and he gathered the families up there, the men and the women and the children and even the strangers, the ones that were not Jewish people that that made the trek with them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. God wanted the families there. The families were there. The generations were there. He wanted the sons and the daughters to hear this. He wanted the sons and the daughters to be an eyewitness to what was happening as this nation was being established. This was a public recitation of the blessing and the cursings of God. The law of God was then written on the plastered stones. They took limestone and ground it into a powder and they mixed it with water and they made a mortar and they they stacked up these stones and then they plastered that just as a... A mason would would parge a cinder block wall. They they parged those stones. They plastered the stones. And while the mortar was wet, they took a little stylus and they scratched the law in that wet mortar. So there would be a record of the blessing and the cursings of God for the people to read. And they wrote it very plainly so it could be read and understood and obeyed. The problem is this, though. This is just a stone pillar with some mortar on it. This isn't a permanent record. This is, at best, a temporary record. Now, they had it permanent because God engraved it in stone. And there's a big difference between an engraved stone and writing in mortar that's plastered on some rocks. That wasn't intended to be a permanent monument. You know what they had to do? They had to refurbish this. 
generation by generation. They had to refurbish it. It wasn't meant to last a lifetime. It was meant to last a lifespan. And then a next generation, they had to plaster God's word on stone and in their heart. They had to own it themselves. It wasn't good enough for them to it just be daddy's faith and mama's faith. It had to be their faith. It had to be their commitment to thus saith the Lord. Every generation had to make a fresh commitment that they were going to follow the Lord. So lesson number two is this. Each generation is responsible to God for its walk with God. And the temporary nature of the pillar shows that they had to step up the next generation and do what their parents did. Every time Israel got a new king, you know what the new king, the first thing he was supposed to do? He was to take the law of God and take paper, pen, parchment, and he was to make his own copy of the law of God. Every king was supposed to make a copy of the law of God, his own personal copy, so that he would read it all the days of his life and obey God as the king to lead the nation right. And then the next king came along. He was to make a copy of the law of God and follow it himself. Teens, kids, mom and dad's faith is good enough for them, but it's not good enough for you. You have to have your own faith. You have to own the faith that God has given to your parents and that God has given you. You've got to own that and hold on to that. Now, I brought along for tonight, I brought my grandfather Elstock's Bible. And this is important to me. As I open the flyleaf of the Bible, it says, Parley Samuel Elstock, April 5th, 1891. That goes way back. Now, that's when he was born. This, this Bible was printed in 1909. And this was his Bible. And he signed it. And I don't know how I got it. Probably stole it from my grandmother. <laughs> my grandmother probably gave it to me. I probably asked her and she gave it to me. And I, but you know, this was good for him. But this is not. I can't rely in this. I can't rely in his Bible and his faith. How many times have you witnessed to somebody about going to heaven and said, well, my grandfather was a preacher as though that meant something. My grandfather being a preacher, that doesn't mean a thing. It meant something for him. But it doesn't it doesn't help me. It, it doesn't get me closer to to heaven. I have to embrace the faith. Now, there is an advantage to having a godly. Having godly ancestors. Grandfather Elstock traveled among the small churches in West Virginia's backcountry, singing and teaching. And I just found out recently he was a circuit riding Sunday school superintendent. For little churches, Bible preaching churches, up the hollers in West Virginia. But his faith, his commitment to Christ, his walk was his. Now, it was an advantage to my father who had to be saved all on his own, trusting Christ, which was an advantage to me, but I had to be saved all on my own, trusting Christ. You don't get saved because you're in a family, you get saved individually. But walking with God certainly gives the next generation a leg up, makes it easier. 
It's a good example. The Bible must be special in our own heart. Is it special to you? Do you take care of it? Do you read it? Do you follow it? Do you take it to church with you? You know, when I was, uh, when my family got saved, mom and dad and then the kids, we, uh, we were in a liberal Protestant church that taught a works salvation. And then we got saved. And, and before salvation, we, we used the Revised Standard Version. I remember seeing the Revised Standard Version in the house. We got saved, and mom and dad got a King James Version. More accurate. The Revised Standard Version had translation difficulties. And, and they got the King James Version. And they bought me a old Schofield hardback uh, Bible with a cyclopedia concordance. And you could find about anything in that cyclopedia concordance. It really helped in learning the Bible. But it was a hardback Bible, and it, and it had red edges to it, the, the ends of the paper. It wasn't a leather-bound Bible with the gilded edge, the nice shiny gold. Well, you don't give a little kid a, a, an expensive Bible they have to grow and mature to where they'll take care of the Bible. And I was in seventh grade and I wanted a nice leather Bible with the gold edges. And, you know, it was it took some money, which I didn't have. And uh, but I did get a dollar twenty five a week from my mom and dad to buy lunch at Robert Frost Intermediate School. And I didn't tell them. But I didn't eat lunch. I saved the dollar twenty-five week after week after week. September, October, November. I didn't eat lunch. Pigged out when I got home at the end of the school day. But I, I saved that money because I wanted that Bible. But I never thought that once I bought the Bible, that my mom would say, "How'd you get that?" <laughs> And I bought the Bible when I had saved enough money. And when she saw it, she said, where'd you get that? Well, I bought it. Where'd you get the money? Uh, then I had to tell her that I was saving my, uh, my lunch money. And she felt really bad. She said, I would have bought it for you if I knew you wanted it that bad. And she would have found a way to buy it. My point is this. I really wanted that Bible bad because the Bible was special. Now, teens, do you want the Bible? Do you really want the Bible so much that you would sacrifice something if you had to, to get the Bible? To get a nice leather bound, gilded edge, reference edition, Indian paper, high quality. Print. Would, would you really save and spend your money to get something like that? And is it precious? To you? It should be precious to us. The Bible was to be engraved in stone and plastered in the hearts of every generation. That's how the nation could be strong. When I met the girl that became my wife, she was 17, senior in high school. I was 19. I was a student at Bible college and her date introduced us at a Valentine banquet. 
And, uh, and the next week I dated her. And uh, it took me four more years to convince her to marry me. But the first Sunday we sat in church, which was about probably a week and a half after we met and uh, at Forest Hills Baptist Church. And the preacher got up and said, open your Bibles, too. And she pulled out her Bible. I pulled out my Bible. She pulled out her notebook and pen. And I looked at it. And I thought, whoa, she must be serious about God's word, about preaching. And I thought, man, I got to really step it up if, if I'm going to get her. And so a week later, I sat by her again and the preacher said, open your Bibles. And she pulled out her Bible and I pulled out my Bible. And she pulled out her notebook and I pulled out my notebook. And, and I, I stepped it up. And I, if I'm going to win her heart, I, I, I've got to be a leader. I've got to be a spiritual leader. And I was attracted to her passion to know God's word. It was, he was serious about it. And that was appealing. One of her favorite books was Hind's Feet on High Places. I heard her talk about it all the time. By Hannah Hernard. The Lord is my strength and he will make my feet like Hind's feet. And he will make me to walk upon my high places. Now God must have used that in her life to impact her. And that's why she talked about it. But it was important to her, God's word and the preaching of God's word and the truths of God's word. And it should be important to each of us. What I'm saying tonight is simply this for teens and children, as well as for parents. We have to own our faith. We have to pass on our faith. Generationally. And the younger generations, you need to take that faith and embrace it. Your faith, parents, affects their faith. That's true. Your spiritual habits affect their spiritual habits. Your faithfulness affects their faithfulness. Your commitment to God affects their commitment to God. Your service affects their service. That's just the way families operate. They need an example. And... The example that we set can benefit them tremendously or or hurt them. My daughter called me up one day and she said, Dad, would you make a would you make a crib for our, our grandchild, your grandchild? She was pregnant with grandchild number one. And she said, would you make a crib for I don't know if we knew if it was a girl or not. And. And I said, I would be glad to make a crib. But I'll tell you, folks, to me, the crib was more than just a crib. It was an opportunity to uh, pass on something that would be meaningful in that grandchild's life as the grandchild got older. So I thought, I'm going to really work at this and try to make an heirloom. And I wanted to give the heirloom with a picture book. And so Susan took pictures as I made the crib. She took pictures. And then we went online, one of these companies, and uploaded the pictures and added text. And so I, I documented the making of the, the crib. And then I wrote a letter to, in this case, it was Brooklyn, my first grandchild, which was a granddaughter. And I'm just going to read the end of the letter. Uh, and I wanted her to have this because my daughter never knew her grandfather. 
He died years before she was even born. So she never had the opportunity. And I don't know how long I'm going to live. So I wanted to make sure I left something that my granddaughter would know a little bit about me. Something I could pass on if, if God didn't let me live to long enough for her to remember me. So at the end, I wrote, as you remember, Pop-Pop and Gigi, I want you to know, I'm Pop-Pop, she's Gigi. I wanted you to, to know that both of us have spent our lives serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We were born again as children. We grew up in church and faithfully served Christ as teenagers. We went to a Christian college. We met each other when Gigi was 17 and I was 19. We married four years later and entered the ministry. And I've been a pastor now for many years. And my prayer for you and your siblings is that you will all be saved early in life and serve Christ faithfully, just like your great-grandparents and your grandparents and your parents have done. Jesus Christ is worth our love, adoration, and service. He died on the cross for us, and the least we can do is to serve him with gratitude. My dad taught me how to use his tools, and I inherited them when he died. I have a little wood shop, and I'm doing the best I can to make a crib. Some men in our church, Valley Forge Baptist Temple, are helping me with the mechanical parts of the crib, and you'll see their pictures in this book. This is a record of the making of an heirloom, and I'm doing this with much love in my heart for you, and I'm thinking of you and praying for you as I make it with all my love, Papa. So I put it in a book, and she's got the book along with the crib. Now, she's getting old enough. She's seven, so she's going to remember me. But I didn't know when I made the crib that she'd remember me. But I wanted her to know faith was in the family. Wanted to pass it down generationally. We need to take this serious that to, to pass our faith to the next generation. And teens and kids, we need to take it serious that we will hold on to the faith and walk with God and let that faith be your faith. It will be a anchor for you in difficult times. Hold on to the truth of God.